Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, and, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. We have another very fascinating morning coming up for you this morning because judging from all the uh, the plant material we have in the studio here, it's going to be great. First up, of course, we have to welcome back Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. And I'm not sure what the day's got in... Uh, in store for us it was a bit of rain I think yeah a little bit of rain on the way down I drove through a couple of showers and what have you but it was actually starting to get light at six o'clock this morning oh isn't it lovely (laughs) I I could let the animals out without going around with a torch to deal with it this morning so so yes so it is in fact getting uh, longer in the days and uh, spring is springing and things are happening and there's bulbs flowering all over the joint and yeah it's it's a lovely time of the year so Mm. uh, I'm quite enjoying watching things happen in the garden at the moment. I'm amazed at how much is just blossoming forth so quickly. Well, given that it's been quite dark and it's been quite cold. That frost we had the other morning. My <sighs> God. Uh, I have for years been planting things I know I shouldn't have um, because of the climate up there. And uh, because I've got a garden opening coming up in a few weeks' time, of course, that frost has blackened quite a number of things in the garden. So I've got Bartlettinas and Wigandias and Iachromas, and they're all in shades of black. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is we don't know if we're going to get another one. You can't really cut them back no, either. Well, there's no point in cutting them back. No. If I do that, then I'm just going to open up the plant for further damage exactly. if we get another so, one. So I just have to sit back, grin and bear it, and look at the bulbs and ignore the frost bitten stuff at the moment but look that's it's, it's, it's p- part of the education and, of looking at a garden and i probably won't lose many of these things i think that you know uh there's a possibility one or two of the plectranthuses might not come back again because they got bitten to the ground Ooh. basically uh but most of the other stuff will come back and i have to say i was getting a bit tired of one or two of the plectranthuses because <laughs> the late flowering ones would nearly get into bloom when the first set of frosts had come in in the autumn most years so i didn't get flowers off quite a number of them. They'd sort of grow like mad, just get ready to flower and then zunk and they'd yep. be gone again. Yep. So there's one or two of them I actually won't miss okay. uh, if, if they go and I'll just have to rethink what I'm going to plant in those spots. Um, and look, that can be fun. I mean, a gap's an opportunity. So sure is. That's the way I look at it anyway. Yep. You've got to. If you lose something in the garden, there is no point in crying about it. Um, and there's no point in letting the weeds just come and take over that exactly. spot. Exactly. So you look at it and you say, all right, there's a posse that I could perhaps try something new. Yep. And that's exactly the way I'll be looking at it with one or two of the things that have probably gone to God. Um, but the rest of it will all come back. It'll just take time in the spring and then I'll have to go over and selectively prune once the new growth starts so that I can prune to where there's good growth. Yep. It'll be fine. Oh, uh, yes. Oh well, given that you've mentioned your garden opening, we better tell listeners what oh, it is. Yes, it's uh, September the 22nd and 23rd. Um, That's so not long. <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> yes, I'm watching the days ticking over, thinking, oh, God, there's another one I haven't got to do anything in. You know, So, so they're, they're going quickly. Um, so, yes, so the garden will be open on the 22nd and 23rd. Uh, it's in 8 Centenary Avenue, Macedon. Uh, if you want more details, you can go on to Open Gardens Vic web- website. Uh, it's up there. Uh, so you'll be able to um, check out times, days, um, 
costs, etc. Um, and we'll have some light refreshments available. I'll have my usual plant stall there. Um, Craig will have his botanic art hanging in the garage, so you'll be able to come and have a look at some botanic art as well. So... Um, all in all, it should make for quite a pleasant It should day. be fun. Yeah. So and if the sun's shining, it'll be even better. Well, it will be. And if the tulips are out, it'll be even better. Aren't they out yet? No. Oh. <laughs> I had my first hybrid tulip open the other day, but most of the others are still in tight bud down inside the leaves. So right, okay. I've got this awful feeling there'll be a lot of potential tulips. Okay. <laughs> oh, the, you never know. Uh, on the weekend. There's the a open. little bit of time. Yeah, well, we I, get there. I was hoping to have a, an asparagus bed full of white tulips and a, and a rhubarb bed full of purple tulips and uh, lots of tulips, but um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'm sure you can describe what they could have been seen. Yeah, well, that's right, exactly. You just yes. need to use your imagination. Exactly. But actually, if you're ever going to open your garden because the tulips will be at their best, it is a good idea to make the decision about a week before to open the garden, <laughs> I reckon, because they're short, they're short span things. They don't flower yes. terribly long. They're a lot of fun, but they're, they're, you, know, you don't get weeks and weeks out of them. So if you're going to hit the tulips just at their best, and because we didn't get a lot of autumn frosts and cold, I think it actually held a lot of those things back that start moving in the winter. Right. Um, certainly the hellebores were later this year than they normally are. Um, and so I think the tulips took a little bit longer to get their act together. Yep. Uh, so I may have a beautiful show of tulips about a week after the opening, maybe. That's <laughs> <laughs> Murphy's Law. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. But look, there'll be other things to see. There'll be cyclamen in flower. Um, I'm hoping to have a few trilliums out. So, there'll, you know, there'll be a few interesting things to look at, undoubtedly. Yep. Um, a bit of early spring blossom, all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there'll, there'll be plenty to see, yep. but maybe not tulips. Yep. Oh, well. We'll, we'll see. It's high time we said a very good morning to Greg Balderson from Longinimous Plants. Morning, Greg. Morning, Pam. How's everything been going with you? Very, very good. Um, still getting used to not doing the nursery, but in a good way. It's sort of uh, um, having weekends back and not being up till two in the morning yes. looking after the nursery and right. then, you know, getting up at five and six in the morning on the weekends. Right. Is, um, so getting used to it, but in a, in a, in a good way. Excellent. <laughs> um, and, yeah, no, some uh, new gardens to work in just recently. So okay. I've just started working in Forest Glade again, which I um, have had a, a, a long relationship with my, it's, you know, a, a couple of doors down from the house I grew up in and, and spent a lot of my oh, wow. childhood in there and, and okay. I've worked in there, uh, a couple of times over the years and, yeah, now back in a slightly different role, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to be in there and, uh, something, something really familiar that you've seen evolve yes. over, over years and, Lovely. you know, I remember, uh, talking to some of the older gardeners and them telling me, I, I shifted that tree and it's a huge oak tree <laughs> and I can go back there now and see stuff that I've helped shift or, or plant, and yep. I'm thinking, that's a big tree now. <laughs> and, uh, You're starting to show your age. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have the same issue when you walk into somebody's garden, you look at this lovely plant, and you say, oh, there's a label down there, and you pull it out, and you see your own handwriting on it. <laughs> that's happened to me quite a few times. I've found quite a few of your handwriting, too, because yeah. it's quite... Uh, yeah, uh, my handwriting's sort of distinctive. People can, yeah. and I certainly can recognise it, yeah. um, and so I certainly know when it's mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And, and yeah, and... And uh, I've started doing the uh, sort of tours of um, the forests of Mount Macedon too. So that's, oh, lovely. Uh, that's been really good. They're not huge numbers. Some of them are quite small groups, but they're actually the more fun ones. Oh, they're, found. they're yeah. great. And even doing some nighttime walks, so taking okay. people through the forest of a nighttime, you oh, know, I under full moon. I get arrested doing that one yeah. day. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But uh, yeah, that's that's. So I did one of those a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know, watched the sunset up near the cross, and then walked to Camel's Hump, and uh, with the idea of looking at the uh, the northern sort of plains under moonlight, but. Just as we got up to the top of Camel's Hump, it's covered in mist and cloud, and, oh. and you can only see about ten, 10 feet. Yeah, that's um, like tulips not opening on time. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't predict yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so uh, really good. It's, it's as I say, it's nice to get some proper sleep <laughs> and, and function uh, function well. Yeah. yeah, I noticed you've also um, back there in in uh, in May. You were doing some fungi walks. Yeah, it's just, that's sort of. Um, so they're, they're fungi walks when the fungi's there. Yes. And now there's not so much fungi there. If, yes. if it's there, we'll stop and... Um, uh, it seems a lot of the people that come on the walks are very uh, keen on photography. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, when there's fungi around, we'll do a... Everyone's two, down on the ground. <laughs> it'll be a three or four hour walk, but yes. we'll only walk two k's. Yes. And then this time of the year we do eight k walks. Yes, and it's the right. same amount of time. <laughs> Um, Fantastic. So yeah, it's it's the same thing, but I, they're just slightly longer walks now because there's less yeah. funky around at this yeah. time of the year. Yeah. So, but there's still a few bits and pieces around, and, um, and there's always something nice to look at. Yeah, oh yeah. It's, yeah. Um, Even if it's not funky, there's well, other stuff. Uh, just yesterday, I went for a, a bit of a road trip with a friend up to a place called Rue, which is an old mining. It's like a, a ruined mining town where there's nothing left of it anymore. Okay, just a big hole in the ground and some old bits of rusty things. Um, and there's all these beautiful little orchids. Popping oh, up. Wow. So you're walking around in the forest and you're thinking, oh, it's pretty dry and there's not much here. And then you see a little splash of purple on the ground and there's this beautiful little orchid and they're so um, intricate and detailed, but they're only, you know, half a centimetre across or yeah, a centimetre right. across. Yeah, right. Um, and, yeah, the, and the fungi and, and even the lichen. Some of the lichens up in the up in the forest mm. in Mount mm. you get some, a, a lot of different species and... Once you start taking note of which ones look like what, there's, uh, um, you know, you, you sort of think of it, maybe lichens used in gardens a bit more might be, uh, I, I know people use them on rocks, but actually intentionally trying to, yeah, trying trying to, to cultivate yeah. them would be interesting yep. stuff. Um, I always laugh when people say there's something wrong with my tree because it's got all this stuff growing on the branches and it's oh. like it. And <laughs> I love the look of lichens yeah. on the Oh, tree. so do I. And it's really interesting how certain species will colonise a specific tree. So you'll get sort of some of the orangey looking ones yep. will be on certain trees. Mm. Then you get the olivey green ones on other trees and stuff and they're a fascinating, fascinating organism. Yes, they are really yeah. quite something. The lichens, and uh, there's a little bit of fungi in there too, because it's a, yeah. a symbiotic relationship yes. uh, with the fungi and bacteria and and plant sort of based cells and things like that all working together. Yes, uh, depending on the on the type of uh, lichen it is. So yeah, there's. Uh, um, and even the mosses, there's oh, all these different types of mosses. Oh, I, and, look, uh, this, this winter, it's been incredible. I have got so much moss mm. around my garden. I've never seen so much moss. And it's this vivid emerald green, and mm. it's just gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. I'm loving it. It's covering the rocks, and mm. it's... Yeah. Wouldn't we love to be able to do a moss garden? The trouble with that is, of course, <laughs> we don't have a summer that really is conducive. Yeah. Um, well, well, the funny thing is, though, is you look at... Uh, I go out into the same parts of the forest in summer, yeah. and you look at the moss, and you think, how it's just brown, and, yeah, and everything's lifeless, yeah. and a week after it rains, everything's 
lush green and yeah. it just pops back to life. Yeah. It's just amazing, yeah. yeah. So you can have your moss garden with yeah. the strain mosses. Stephen, <laughs> you would need an army of little old ladies. Yes, with little with brooms. With little brooms. <laughs> Getting every leaf off it yes. so you don't get little patches. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yes, well, actually, a moss lawn can be quite hard maintenance because um, mm. some of the big properties, as Greg well knows, up on Mount Macedon, uh, the tree cover's got so dense in some of those gardens that the grasses have disappeared altogether. Yep. And so most of the lawns have turned to moss. But you do have to keep the leaf litter off it because mm. otherwise it soon just gets well, swamped. The, event, the invention of the leaf blower helped yeah. out moss lawns a lot because yeah, rakes, oh, rakes tear oh, the pieces. Oh, you can't put a rake through it. Well, you can, but you've got to be really oh. light-handed. You've got to yeah. know your stuff with a moss lawn if you're yeah. going to use a rake. But yeah. I've seen plenty of them pretty well destroyed by somebody with a rake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I used to do them with a rake uh, okay. years ago when I used to work at Glen Rannick. I used to rake all the moss lawns yeah. there. Uh, but you had to have a really light touch to mm. get the moss or get the leaves off without destroying the moss. And then you've got all these people who spend their whole time trying to get rid of the moss in their lawns. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I always think of near Devonshire Lane on Mount Macedon. Um, uh, Arthur Carlyle used to uh, rip up his lawn every year and put grass seeds down. It was just too dark. And even as a kid, I'm thinking... I don't know. I reckon I'd just go with the moss. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it's better to go with what will work. Exactly, exactly. Okay, I must get to a few announcements. There must be a few things happening, spring happening. Well, today, of course, before we continue, a very happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Of course, yes, it is. It's Father's Day today. So, yes. Happy Father's Day, Greg. Yes. Yeah, I've got one. Did you get a surprise? Uh, well, actually, she stayed. My daughter Holly stayed at a friend's place last night, and I'm meeting her after this. Oh, and, okay. Um, so she's coming down on the train from her, with her friend. Okay. And we're meeting at the exhibition gardens after this. Oh, for excellent. A bit of a day out. Yep. So I, oh, I haven't nice. seen her yet today. And, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh well. <laughs> well, I hope she remembers it's Father's Day. Yes. Yeah, I think I think she will. Yeah. <laughs> Um, first up, we have, um, as part of uh, Open Gardens Victoria, Musk Cottage down at Flinders is open today. Um, now, this is the first uh, open garden for the season, so um, it's a big uh, celebration of um, what I hope will be um, several months of wonderful gardens opening up with um, Open Gardens Victoria. Uh, now, this could be... Uh, the last opportunity to see the garden because there are plans to sell the property. Ah. So um, if you do get the chance to go down to Flinders today, it would be an ideal time to go and have a look at it. It's a four-hectare property on the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, it's been a pet project of Rick Eckersley um, for the past 10 years and uh, the palette of plants is not restricted to native or indigenous uh, there are plants from around the world uh, that have been uh, knitted together to create a rich textural landscape. Uh, now, the opening um, promises to be a great festive day out for the whole family. There'll be coffee, refreshments, produce, plant sales available, and proceeds uh, from the Musk Cottage Open Garden will support Global Gardens of Peace which is an Australian charity that aims to plan, design and deliver gardens to support vulnerable communities around the world. Now, the details are the address is 371 Musk Creek Road in Flinders. It's open 10am through to 4.30 this afternoon. Entry is $10, children under 18 free and students are $5. Um, And as I said, there's going to be plant sales, coffee and... um, and uh, some other bits and pieces. So, yeah, that's, that's today down at uh, Flinders. Now, coming up, um, 
our uh, good friends uh, from, um, let me see, goodness me. Uh, this is the next meeting um, of uh, the uh, Australian Native Plant Society. Uh, they've got their meeting coming up and Russell Clark and Matt Henderson, both horticulturalists from RBGV Cranbourne, are going to give a talk about the flora of the Grampians. Uh, now, this is uh, at the Australian Plant Society Keylor Plains Group. Now, it's coming up next Friday, September the 7th, 7.50, uh, the address, Raleigh Road Activity Centre, 54 Raleigh Road in Maribyrnong. All are welcome, uh, and if you'd like more information, you can go to uh, their website, which is APSKeylorPlains, all one word, dot org dot au so au for more information but that's next friday 7th of september 7:50 p.m. uh now we do have um a little announcement that i should uh quickly play the australian plants expo is a huge native plant fair coming up on september 8th and 9th in eltham There'll be books, art, giftware and talks by Philip Johnson, A.B. Bishop and Loretta Childs. There'll also be demonstrations and workshops on botanical art, propagation and native bonsai, as well as activities for children, refreshments and door prizes. Saturday and Sunday, September 8th and 9th, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Contact at apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430 for more details. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. And as I mentioned uh, last weekend, that is um, uh, a show that I went to last year and I can really, really recommend it. The amount of plant material they had there was stunning, all in uh, glorious flower. Um, so it really is an excellent one. So that's coming up 8th and 9th, which, of course, is next weekend, 10 through till 4 on both days, 801 Main Road there in Eltham. Uh, now, also coming up on that same next weekend, 8th and 9th, is uh, Fernie Creek Horticultural Society in conjunction with Camellias Victoria have got their big uh, show coming up. Uh, the venue is 100 Hilton Road in Sassafras. Times next Saturday, 12 through till 4. Sunday, 10 through till 4. Entry is $5. Under 14 is free. Uh, it's going to be featuring daffodils, camellias, early spring bulbs and perennials, um, all sorts of wonderful flower displays. There'll be guided walks of the four-hectare garden, sales of rare plants and cut flowers, uh, a member's photographic display, refreshments, light lunches, sausage sizzle, you name it, and there's ample free parking there on site. So the address of that one for next weekend, 100 Hilton Road in Sassafras. <clears throat> and finally, just one I will quickly mention. Um, uh, coming up down at Geelong Botanic Gardens, they have their September-themed walk coming up Sunday the 9th of September, 2 o'clock, meet your guide at the front steps of Geelong Botanic Gardens. Entry is gold coin donation, and it's all about Chinese plants in the garden. So that's another one that will be most interesting. If you want more information... 
You can phone the Friends Group on 5222-6053. Stephen, we should mention that, um, that your next tour is fully booked out. Yes, yes, the tour to Morocco, if you were thinking of going and you haven't booked, it's, it's too, too late. late. Yes, yes, they've apparently even got a wait list, so if somebody drops out, there's already somebody ready to leap straight in, uh, which is gratifying. It's nice to oh, have a tour wonderful. fully booked out, um, and I'm certainly looking forward to it. Um, I mean, the gardens there will be amazing, but for me, the highlight's going to be getting up into the Atlas Mountains and seeing wildflowers. Oh, mm. yes. I just... So looking forward to that. Um, so uh, we'll be visiting amazing gardens like Yves Saint Laurent's garden in Morocco and uh, lots of other expat gardens and things as well as local gardens. Um, and yes, uh, travelling up into the High Atlas Mountains to hopefully see some things like, um, well, like Moroccan snowflakes. Uh, I happen to bring a Moroccan <laughs> snowflake. How kindly. Um, uh, they're now known as Acus. Um, some of those out there who know the botanic names of plants will remember them as leucogems. Um, two plants were left in leucogem um, and they're both species that have little green spots on the flowers. Okay. So you can say leucogems have green spots on the flowers. Acus have all straight coloured flowers uh, and they tend to be smaller than some of the leucogem species. And it's ACIS, so it's a nice, short, easy name to write on a label. I've always enjoyed writing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Rather than leucogem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, short little names. I quite like those. Um, when you get something like Persicaria virginiana subspecies filifolia painter's palette, and you've got to write that on a label, then it becomes a And you've only got small ones left. Yeah, and you've only got the little labels. It can be really quite a pain in the neck. Uh, so Acus uh, tingatana is a gorgeous little Moroccan bulb that we might see. And we might also see some of the hoop petticoat daffodils, because some of the species of those come from the Atlas Mountains in okay. Morocco. And I bought a little hybrid one along the morning. I love the little hoops. They're, They're beautiful. They're the cutest little things. They, they really are. are. And this is a little hybrid one that was produced in Tasmania by the, the famous Australian breeder Rod Barwick. Uh, who always gives plants naff names, unfortunately, but he grows some really, really <laughs> good varieties. This one is called Mitimoto for reasons I have no idea. It's not okay. even Mikimoto, it's Mitimoto. Okay. Um, and it's a lovely soft yellow, clear, bright, but soft yellow, um, and it's a good, strong little doer. It seems to flower prolifically, because some of the wild ones that you buy can be sort of a bit hit and miss as far as they're flowering. Okay. But some of these little hybrids seem to have really good flowering vigour, and um, so that one's just coming out at the moment, um, and uh, it's looking charming in the garden. So they're the sort of things we might see in Morocco. Mm. Uh, so unfortunately, if you were thinking of going, you can't, but... Just in passing, I'll mention that the prices are all out now for the Madagascan tour in September. It'll be late September. Um, so if people are interested in doing the Madagascan tour, I can only take 16 people as a maximum. So it's quite a small group. Um, and I think it starts on the 19th of September, runs through into early October. Um, it's on the Australian Studying Abroad website. I think they've put it up on my website as well. Uh, but certainly if you went into the Australian Studying Abroad website, it'll give you the opportunity to uh, look for certain places or for certain tour leaders or for tours at certain times of the year uh, so you can sort of type in the right appropriate information yep. and the Madagascan tour should come up and uh, so you know that's well you've been with me to Madagascar oh, Pam gosh, you yes. know just how remarkable the place oh, it's, is uh, it's amazing how otherworldly in fact it is it's just like nowhere else you could ever go totally so, so yeah so we're getting that one ready for, for going and it would be really nice if we filled that one quick smart as well 
So get in touch with ASA if you're interested. And even if you just put yourself down as an interested party at this point in time... Well, so that, that way you'll get a lot more of the information yeah. and you can then make a decision. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, so show uh, um, an interest in it and uh, who knows, you could be going to Madagascar with me in September. Honestly, I really believe it's somewhere everyone should go to once in their life. Oh, and and yeah. you can't do it on your own. It's too hard. The you really have to go it, with the two And group. even if you did decide to do it on your own, it just makes it so much harder to get into all the different places. Oh. that you might want to visit and it's certainly a lot more expensive to do it that way because you've really got to hire a vehicle and a driver if you're going to do it on your own yep. uh, so there are economies of scale going with you know 15 other people um, and you know we hire minibuses where possible and we have four wheel drives that take us into other areas uh, but it's certainly a lot cheaper in the long run to do it that way and you don't waste as much time trying to get yourself organised mm. so yeah so the Madagascan tour is getting ready and I can probably let people know too that if they're planning even further ahead uh, ASA have already got me booked up for the following year to do uh, Normandy and Brittany uh, and Chile. So there's two tours coming up uh, in 2020. Okay. <laughs> I keep saying, are you sure we should be booking this far ahead? I could be sort of, uh, you know, seriously old by the time we get round to doing them. No, it's what keeps you going, Steve. Well, I think you're probably right, actually. Yeah. And it's not yeah. that far ahead now. It's, no, yeah. it's not. It's, It'll it's, go it, quickly. It comes pretty quick, yeah. yeah. It does. Yes, my mum was right. Time goes faster the older you get. Oh, it does. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a couple of things to look forward to. I mean, obviously, there's no prices and things on the tours for 2020 yet. Um, but if you know what's coming up and ahead, you can start planning and saving and and what have you and getting ready to go if you would like to go. Um. Now, while we're on all these various announcements and things that are happening, we should also mention Plant Trust and the AGM. Yes, yes. Uh, Those who haven't been to one of our... Big night outs, we're starting to call them instead of the AGM because that always frightens people. They think they're going to get elected. <laughs> so um, just keep your hands in your pocket yeah, until right. the yeah, auction starts. Yeah, and um, uh, the normally the AGM part of it is very quick, swift, and we get through it no time flat. It's all just sort of fairly perfunctory because we've got it all sort of planned ahead, and you know we know who's prepared to take on what posts and things as a rule. Um, so that side of it is really quick. Uh, we have wine and cheese and and nibbly things available so it's a very nice ambience uh, when you come in and the main part of the evening is where we have um, the big plant auction and collection holders and kind nursery people um, supply us with plant material of all sorts some stuff that's just not available commercially Um, I mean last year we had a Helleborus tibetanus that I paid a fortune to buy <laughs> Apparently the auctioneer is allowed to. <laughs> well, at least that's my rules. Uh, and, uh, I mean, that's not available commercially anywhere in Australia. So, you know, some plants like that come along uh, at the plant auction. So it's great fun. Uh, it's a fundraiser, obviously, for Plant Trust. Uh, it'll be held in Domain House, um, which is that nice white building down... Just down from the herbarium. Yeah, if you're sort of standing with your face to the herbarium, if you turn around, you'll see Domain House just down the, the lane in front of you. Yes. Uh, so it'll be in there. We start about 6.30, um, and it's Thursday, September the 20th. Gosh, that is close. Yeah, so it's not far off, um, and I'd recommend people come along. Uh, and also, if there's any... Um, Growers out there that are prepared to donate plant material to us, I would love to hear from you. Um, if, uh, we don't want masses of any given thing, uh, as much as that would be kind. Um, because it's an auction, we want as many different and interesting and 
sort of odd plants that we mm. can uh, we can sell. And because they are, um, the majority of people at these events are serious plant collectors, it doesn't need to be in full colour or whatever. I've got huge prices for pots of dirt. Mm. <laughs> At, at these events, you know, so you know, people know what they're going I always through. used to try and send down uh, a few pots of things each year, but I don't have them potted anymore because I haven't got the nursery. But it's just reminded me I've got actually some of these, the uh, little Arasarum proboscidium uh, in pots left over from the nursery. Oh, so well, I might, uh, I'd be very happy to I might try take and drop some of those so off to Yeah, that would be fantastic, well, yeah. Greg. Um, but, yeah, so it's a great night out. Uh, it's a good way to meet other people who are involved in Plant Trust. And I might add, although Plant Trust's main uh, direction is registering collections of plants, uh, which is the important sort of thing it does, uh, and certainly there may be some of our listeners who in fact are plant collectors and who would like to consider uh, registering their collections with us. Um, but it's also a great social thing. Uh, we have fabulous outings. Um, we have our big AGM. We have a quarterly newsletter that goes out called Genus, uh, where it keeps you up to date with things and, and people write articles about specifically interesting groups of plants in it. Um, and so you can join as a general member just to support the organisation and its aims, which, of course, mm. are to try and protect the botanical diversity of plant material that we have in Australia, because as people may be aware, it's getting harder and harder to import plants with quarantine restrictions oh, gosh, and so yes. forth. And uh, if we lose plant material from cultivation here, um, it's quite probable it'll never come back again. So mm. if we don't protect what we've got, um, then the... Dreadful thing that seems to be happening, or is happening anyway, which is plant diversity becoming less and less in, in horticulture, um, it's just going to get even worse. Mm. Uh, so, you know, by protecting these collections and registering them, uh, we know where they are if somebody needs them for a breeding program or for propagating material or to study the genetics of or for whatever reason, um, and it also means, too, that if we know where a collection is, if there's a collection holder that's getting beyond looking after their collection or so if something's going on, we can always get into discussion with them how the collection might be able to be moved on to somebody else who yep. can continue the good work. Yep. Um, we ended up with the lavender collection when Rosemary Holmes retired, right. uh, and that got taken over by the Bendigo Botanic Gardens, which was fantastic. So it was a, a win-win situation for all concerned. So they're now holding the National Lavender Collection there. Um, so you, that sort of thing. You goes can also on. get. Um, I know at high, I've got a gladiolus species at home that's pretty much extinct in the wild, and mm. so some of the collections often have plants that are fairly endangered where they actually come from, and and collections. Holders like that also protecting things that are mm. quite endangered in yes. the wild, where they came from somewhere else too. So, yeah. uh, well, you've only got to import that way. Look as at well. the Willamai pine as an example. I mean, uh, there's <coughs> a species that had got down to about 100 or so in the wild, mm. uh, but because there was a lot of interest shown in it and because it was propagated up, um, it's now comparatively safe in cultivation so that if for some awful reason something gets in and wipes it out in the wild, the plant is still in fact. In existence, yep. uh, which is really important. I mean, it could so easily have disappeared altogether without us even knowing it had been there. Yes. Uh, now that they have found it, well, they're protecting it. And these sort of things are really important uh, uh, overall. So, yes, yeah, so holding on to plant material. And that also goes for uh, hybrid material as well. I mean, if a wild species is still in the wild, I guess you can always bring it back into cultivation, uh, even if there's only a few of them left. But if a hybrid disappears... It's gone forever. 
That's right. Because even if you try to create the same cross, it's you're not... It's a one-off. Yeah, it was a one-off. That's right. And so there's a lot of breeding that goes on in Australia. I mean, there's breeders that have bred canners. There's breeders that have bred all sorts of things over the years. Um, and a lot of these Australian selections are particularly good for Australian conditions. You've just got to look at things like the um, Alistair Clark roses, That's for right. instance. Say. Yep. Um, he bred roses that were particularly good for our climate. But a lot of those roses never went overseas. Mm. And so if we don't protect them here, uh, we can't get them back again mm. you know mm. they'll just disappear altogether mm. and that would be awful mm. so yeah so that's the sort of thing plant trust is doing so um, i would love to see more people get involved um, and certainly it's a good idea to come along to the agm because you get to meet people and you know have a fun night and sort of put your toe in the water so to speak yeah um, and certainly we'd love to hear from people who've got um, you don't have to have a collection that is comprehensive because it's virtually impossible to have a comprehensive collection of many groups of plants. Unless there's a, 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 a like I had the Shizus Fragma uh, collection at one stage, and there was only three varieties in Australia. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It does make it, it does make it easier. So you can sometimes. Yeah, yeah, you can have a smallish collection, and it can be complete, I suppose. Mm-hmm. In fact, the smaller the group of plants, probably the more complete the collection should be. Should be. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but it needs to be representative. Uh, of whatever group you're collecting. So, um, I mean, I've got four national collections, three in the garden at home and one up at the nursery. Uh, I've got dogwoods at the nursery, the Cornus collection. Um, and I think I've got about, I think at last count I had about 35 towards 40 species and cultivars of Cornus. And, of course, there's new ones coming along with those on a regular basis, so it's hard to keep up. Um, and in the garden at home I've got the elderflowers, the Sambucus, uh, Acanthus, and Osmanthus, all of which are comparatively small genera, uh, certainly not that many wild species, although with Sambucus there's quite a lot of hybrids and selections that have been made over the years, and certainly in Europe there's a lot more than we'll ever have in Australia of those. But um, it's sort of fun to... It, it takes your garden to another level by oh, having totally. a collection. You know, yes. It gives you something that you're working at uh, and for. Um, it also gives your garden, particularly if you're going to open your garden, it gives your garden a, a different level. Mm. Uh, and certainly I think anybody who's in the commercial field of horticulture, it's not a bad idea to be holding a collection of something because you can set yourself up as a nursery with some point of difference mm. by having the collection of. Yes. Uh, so, so what's the process of actually... Getting the collection, like, do you approach the uh, Plants Trust and is there forms to fill? Oh, yeah, there's 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 a little bit of paperwork. It's not actually very onerous. I mean, if you were doing a collection in England, you've virtually got to bow scrape and and face certain directions and, 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 (laughs) and, you know... Grease the palm of about 10 people. Uh, it's really difficult to get a national collection in England, but then they've got a huge population, lots of people who are interested, and they can be quite picky. Mm. Uh, we, on the other hand, uh, are looking at it from a different angle, that we want to protect these plants as much as possible. So really, it's not that complicated. You've got to obviously join Plant Trust, so become a member. Uh, and then uh, from that point on, if you've got a collection of plant material, then you'd get in touch with us and say, look, I've got the Snuggadootsias or whatever the genus happens to be. Um, And then we would send you out um, an email thing where it's got 
a form in it that you can then fill out with the species that you've got and a little bit of provenance about them and all that sort of stuff. Then you put that up for registration. It comes to committee. The committee looks at it to see that it's um, you know a reasonably well-documented collection and you seem to know what you're talking about. Um, where possible, we like to visit collections, so we may well go out and have a look and see what you've got, but we are registering collections all over Australia now, so the issue there is, of course, that we just don't have the money or the mm. time or to... The time, yeah. To visit somebody in northern Queensland who's got a CICAD collection or mm. whatever. Um, so sometimes we've got to take these things a little bit on trust. Um, and then if it's a private, insti- a private person or uh, institute, the collection, if it's deemed to be worthy, will then be provisionally registered uh, for a time. Because one thing we do have to make sure of is that people aren't just sort of fly-by-nights who get excited by something and then move on. Yes. And that happens. Mm. You know, there are people who get excited by a group of plants, collect a whole pile, and then get bored <laughs> and then move on. And to move on to another one. Yeah, <laughs> and so we don't want people who are doing that to, to do that to us because if we've gone to all the effort to register the collection, we'd like to think it's being cared for. Oh, yes. Um, so yeah. normally we'll go on a provisional list for a year or two, uh, and depending on how the collection holder reacts and what sort of follow-up information we're getting, we'll then make a decision on final registration. And then once it's registered, they get a certificate to say they've got a registered collection. They can also get a plaque made if they wish. We get plaques made, a, a nice anodized plaque that can be stuck up in the garden or the nursery or wherever you yeah. happen to be. Um, and um, and then you just really, it's then from then on, it's just a matter of keeping us in touch with your collection every so often to update us with additional species or, dare I say, the loss, loss of something. Of something yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, those things can happen even in the best of hands. Um, so, you know, every so often you just need to update your, your information. So mm. it's, not, it's not particularly onerous unless, of course, you're collecting every known rose cult. And then, <laughs> then trying to document that might be fun. And it's important too, I think, um, and I, this is probably the point of the Plants Trust anyway, but um, even people that haven't got registered collections but do have unusual plants that they know aren't easy to obtain, yes. share them around. Yeah, yes. because yes. the way to keep you, something is to give it away. Yeah. Exactly. So, and, and when you're in the know, you, you, you can pick and choose who you share it with, of course. Yeah. So... You know, the first, if you've got, um, again, you know, I might have a rare bulb that I've imported as seed years ago, and I know that there might be others in Australia, but there's not that many. So when I get enough, I'd never sell bulbs like that if I get, you know, one bulb spare. Yes. For the first couple of years, I'll be going, who's the best person to give this to? So yeah. I know if mine die, yes. someone got else has got it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you, exactly. you do. You need that sort of insurance policy. Yeah. And that's another thing, too, that Plant Trust is very enthusiastic about, is multiple collections of the same group of plants. You know, we don't necessarily want people to have the national collection of something. Mm. We'd like to think it is a national collection of something because... Well, you've only got to look at things like bushfire and flood and famine and locust plagues and all the things that happen in Australia. Mm. Uh, if, in fact, uh, we've got duplicate collections, they can be uh, cross-pollinating each other. Uh, and also, if something happens, you've got a chance of that collection being re-established again yep. uh, through the auspices of one of the other collection holders. So certainly we're not trying to become elitist about this. We want people to, you know, I mean, there's so many plants out there, there's no way we're going to be able to have multiple collections of every genus of plants known to man. But we have the opportunity in Australia, because we've got so many different climatic zones, um, of holding collections of almost any group of plants mm. somewhere. 
mm. which is fantastic. I mean, we could have, I don't know, the Mechanopsis collection in Tasmania somewhere and uh, the Monstera collection somewhere in northern Queensland or, or the Northern Territory. Mm. You know, so we could quite literally have collections of almost every group of plants known to man mm. somewhere in Australia. Yep. Um, which... You know, it, we could become something of a repository of really important botanical stuff. Mm. And so I think it's a very important organisation and I'm very pleased to be a part thereof. Brilliant. Uh, and I'd like to see more people come yep. to our meeting. Yep. Okay. Uh, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. Um, it is high time we opened up our talkback lines for our listeners. If you'd like to ring in and ask a gardening question, do give us a call. The number is 94190155 to speak to Stephen or Greg. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Doug, who's on the outside line, 94198377. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, we do have a query from the outside line. Michael from Forest Hill would like to know how to collect seed from blackwoods and spotted gums. Well, it's easy enough. Um, with the wattles, it's a good idea to leave the pods on the plant until they start to brown uh, so that you know the seed is ripe. And if you pull one apart, the seed will, with most uh, acacia species, will be very dark brown or black uh, and the seed will be ripe. And then it's really just a matter of pulling the pods off the tree, uh, putting them somewhere where as they split and what have you, the seed isn't going to get distributed because they can... Inside be, a brown paper bag. Yeah, mm. brown paper bags are one of the most important technical things of collecting seed, really. <laughs> uh, and so just hold them in a, in a brown paper bag until all the seed falls out. Most acacias uh, are easy enough to collect the seed of. It's about sowing it that is important because you do need to give them a hot water treatment to break the dormancy. So collecting the seed is easy, but you've got to remember to... Soak the seed in hot water overnight uh, and then sow the next day. If the seed is swole, swollen uh, to about double the size it started when you put it in the water, it means it's taken water up and they're ready to germinate and then you sow them the next day. With eucalypts, um, uh, they're easy enough too in a sense. All you've got to do is collect the gum nuts when they're, they haven't split open uh, but are also ripening, browning, uh, and then just collect them, put them in a brown paper bag and they'll open up naturally and all the seed will shed to the bottom. Eucalypt seed's quite fine. It's sort of brown, dusty stuff. Um, and they don't need pre-treatment of any form, um, but you would sow most eucalypt seed, you know, sort of about this time of the year, mm. early spring, um, and you'd sow it reasonably finely because you'll end up with an awful lot of them. Uh, in fact, you could end up with a forest in a seed tray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it depends on how many you want, um, but, you know, you can raise a vast quantity in a comparatively small area, at least in the initial stages, that you've got to be able to then work out what you're going to do with them yeah. as you get them bigger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're easy enough. It's, yeah. uh, both both genera are easy to collect, and it's only the wattles that you need to give a, uh, a heat treatment to. Fair enough. Mm. Okay, great. First up, let's go to Anne out in Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, panel. Um, I'll be leaving Oak Park soon. I'm selling my property. I'm moving on to the country. Right. And there, there I hope to establish an animal refuge. And uh, I've got a few acres and a nice little brick cottage to live in. But to get to Oak Park, um, my garden at Oak Park has been planted by me and the birds. The birds have planted the wattle tree, some bottle brush, a fig tree, a gum tree, all of this type of thing. And I want to protect my garden from developers and all of that before I go. So what do I do? 
uh, it's not an easy thing to do. You can't really. You know, because anybody can tell you that they're not going to pull your house down and destroy the garden. And but then they can turn around and they have every right to do it because they've purchased it. And I don't know how you can put any sort of uh, covenant over a private property like that. No, you can't. Um, so I don't see there's any way you can do this, Anne. I think uh, what you've got to do is, if you've got land somewhere out there that you're moving to, I think you look forward, not behind, because um, no matter what you do to try and protect it, I mean, you could sell it to somebody who tells you all the right things and then they'll send the bulldozers through straight Mm. after they've signed the papers. So I don't think you've got any chance of protecting what's there. Um, All you can do is take cuttings and take them with you if you want to really preserve some of the, the plants you've got. Um, and I strongly advise, once you've sold the property, don't go back yeah, and have never, a look. Never, never go back. Never, ever go back. Because it's soul-destroying. It, it is, and I don't know how often I get people in the nursery who've sold on, moved into a new garden, uh, getting a new garden going, and they say things like, oh, the people who bought our place have destroyed it, and yet when they bought it, they said they bought it because they loved the garden. I know. And and it was a whole pile of lies and nonsense, yep. and um, and they went in and clear-felled everything as soon as they got their hands on it. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then didn't even put a decent garden back. I don't understand why people will destroy a garden. Wouldn't, and wouldn't it help if I said no developers in my advertisement? You can try all those things, but you can't stop them. So the, uh, they and will at, the, at the end of the day, you need to sell your property. Yeah. So you can try to say all those things, um, but I'm sorry, Anne. Look, a developer doesn't necessarily mean, uh, mean that they're going to be honest to people either, and they may very well tell you all the right things, and then you don't find out till afterwards they were a developer. Or the people you sell to might be really nice, and then I sell it three years later to someone else. Who is a developer. Who is a developer. <clears throat> yeah, so yeah. long term, there's no protection for private land, really. I mean, acreage you can get covenants on, and you can get sort of land for wildlife and, of course, Status historic properties you can get covenants yeah, on. Yeah, but, but unfortunately the trees the birds sowed in your garden aren't going to have any sort of historical importance, so no. I don't see that you've well, got anything you can do. my neighbour's house? She's got beautiful, tall, established gum trees. Three of them are gorgeous. Well, there's nothing, again, there's nothing you can do. No. No, you've just got to hope that somebody has at least a bit of a soul that buys your place or the neighbour's place and keeps some of these trees as habitat because they're getting fewer and fewer with houses being built to boundaries, these giant McMansions and other properties being multi-built on with multiple dwellings on them. Uh, There ends up being no room for garden in a lot of these places and it's very sad. Uh, But the way Melbourne's growing, I can't see that there's any way you can really stop it, Anne. No. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye, Anne. Right. Next up, we have uh, Dave in Frankston. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, good morning, everybody. I was just asking the question, when you live in an area where there's a lot of trees and a lot of greenery and everything, do you believe in, the, not the theory, do you believe that if you have a, in an area where there's a lot of trees, that the trees actually draw the rain? Well, it's actually a scientific fact that if there's enough vegetation, it is actually uh, 
it will actually bring rain to the area. So it is a fact, in fact. It's not just and a theory. It's also the trees are probably there because it rains a little bit more too. Yeah, so yeah. Probably yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but, yes, if you've got good forests, then you're bound to bring rain. Now, whether suburbs that a tree bring more rain than other areas mm. is possibly a bit more of a moot point because you've still got roads and footpaths and All uh, that driveways and, and houses yeah. with hard roofs. and there's, So there's less of a tree cover in that sort of environment. Um, but certainly, yes, if we plant good forests of trees, not only are we likely to attract rain, but it will also actually control the rain when we get it because um, trees will stop rain hitting the ground too quickly. They'll also soak they'll up a lot of moisture. Yeah, yeah. They'll stop a lot of runoff. Yep. Um, and so... And improving the soil by dropping leaves and bark yeah. and things yes. and breaking down. And, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's a win-win situation if we can encourage people to plant more trees. And even in smaller gardens, which they seem to be these days, it doesn't mean you can't have a decent-sized tree. Everybody seems to think when their garden gets small that they can only have weeny little shrubs and, and, and a few annuals or something. Um, but I'd rather take up the space with one nice little tree or even a substantial tree, because if the house is properly built, there's no reason why you can't have a large tree comparatively close to a dwelling, um, because that will give you great sort of um, uh, passive solar effects. It'll give the birds something to live in. And, yes, enough of them will attract rain. Yeah, well, that, well that's good. Uh, another quick question. I've got a big cypress tree in the backyard. It's very healthy. Do they live to over to 100 years old and do they, do they grow to about 40 or 50 feet? It's pretty big as it is, very healthy. I was yeah. just asking about that. Well, it depends on the cypress. I mean, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of different varieties of conifers. Uh, but yes, to your question, they can live a long time. Uh, in fact, the world's oldest plant is thought to be a conifer. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they can live for a long, long time. Um, and depending on which one, they can grow into forest giants. I mean, the tallest tree in the world is a conifer. Uh, the heaviest tree in the world is a conifer. Um, and, and so is the longest lived. So, um, but they're all different species. So it depends on exactly which one you've got. And, but some of the cypresses... If, if, it, if it's a cypress, yeah, some of the cypresses can get very big. Yeah, you only have to go down along the coast. Time. Go to Lawn and have, <laughs> yes. have a look at the big golden cypresses down at Lawn uh, uh, along the, the, the shore. They're huge. They are. And even those aren't full grown. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so some of them can grow into vastly big trees. And I do have some issues with large conifers in suburban blocks because they have a fibrous root system. Uh, and they don't allow a lot of rain to actually get through the canopy. More light. Yeah, all light. <laughs> uh, it can be very dark, dingy, dry, and difficult to grow things under a large conifer. So uh, as much as they might be a, a beautiful tree in their own right, they're probably not something I'd encourage most people to plant in a suburban garden because, in fact, they make it hard to grow other things. Anyway, uh, thank you for that. And, I, uh, and also, too, there's one thing about trees. When you get, get that very hot weather... If you're in the street with a lot of trees, you can, the temperature is almost 5 or 10 degrees lower than down the road in the shopping centre where there's hardly any trees. That's exactly. right, mm, exactly. Yeah. 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 They're so important and yet people tend to ignore them or just cut them down because they're there. Mm. Um, and uh, it's so, so sh- sort of short mind or short-sighted to, to destroy trees and not be out there planting them. So... Let's encourage everybody to put in a tree. Absolutely. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Right, next up we have uh, Jill out in East Malvern. Good morning, Jill. 
Hi, Pam, Stephen. Good morning, uh, Jill. Hi. Well, the, you won't believe it, but the topic at the Herb Society on Thursday, 7.15pm, is Marty Townsend talking about the benefits of trees, plants and gardens on human health, both physical, mental and emotional. Well, there, there you go. go. There you go. So, and uh, she's, uh, been, she's, been, she's professor at Deakin University and they've been uh, doing a lot of research on how gardens affect people. And, of course, Judy Dench's fantastic program, My Passion for Trees, would convert anybody who's an anti-tree person into loving trees. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> and, well, people can see that on iView. Um, I think it was May the 1st or 2nd on the ABC. It's a BBC production. And I wrote to her and thanked her for that fantastic program and got a letter back from her. Oh, great. Well done. So, um, anyway, um, Thursday at Herb Society is at Burnley Horticultural College and it's building the main building and room 10. It's $5 for visitors and um, members bring herbal supper and then we usually have a raffle of a book or plants or both and um, it's a very jolly group. Excellent. um, And can I say that um, in my own garden um, I'm just... uh, pruned i've taken it to church and that is my melianthus major you know with the big big um, burgundy buds on mm-hmm. right well these these were the ones from last year and now there's the new ones coming up as well so i didn't want to have sort of 15 of them so two of two have gone off to be um in a better place today <laughs> okay <laughs> wonderful anyway thanks very much for the program and Stephen it was brilliant yesterday on the ABC as well yeah I had fun uh, yesterday with talking about opening gardens it's uh, it's one of those things that's very close to my heart and uh, because I've got an opening coming up it seemed apropos to have a talk about opening gardens oh, yes, but, well, but from both them. sides from opening them and, and visiting them yes mm. that's right well I've, I've actually had open gardens for the family, you know, on Mother's Day and so on. And my children and I, after school on a Friday, would go off and buy plants in flowers and then straight away uh, we'd plant them all and then we'd be admired for having flowering, you know, the daf- your daffodils flowering already, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and the children would say, it's a big secret. <laughs> So, you know, it's better than buying a bunch of flowers, really, because you have that daffodil for at least three weeks in flower in the, in the garden. <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much. Okay, bye. Bye. Now, just before uh, we move on, I must mention, um, as listeners should know by now, but another reminder, 3CR Gardening Show is on Facebook oh, now. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. And um, all the plants we're going to be talking about in a moment uh, well, m- nearly all of them have been put up there online, so you can go to our Facebook page. Just just log into Facebook, um, tick on in the address book, uh, 3CR Gardening Show. It should all come up, and you'll see the plants we're going to talk about, the photos of them with their names up there on can, the site. You can so. see whether we're any good at describing things <laughs> on radio. <laughs> <laughs> now, why, I, I mention that again um, partly because last week... Um, 
on the show, we were talking about um, Tilopia Essie's gift. Um, and I did notice that uh, one of our listeners had put in a query onto the Facebook page wondering where she might be able to purchase one, and she lives down in um, South Gippsland. Ah, yes. So, Sonia, if you're listening, I tried to do some homework. The nearest, uh, the nearest nursery I've been able to find that's a retail nursery that should stock them, and if they haven't got them in stock right now, they should certainly be able to get them for you. It's um, a nursery called... Bushwalk Native Nursery, and it's in Cranbourne South. It's at 640 Cranbourne Frankston Road in Cranbourne South, and I'll give you their phone number. It's 9782-2986. So that's 9782-2986, Bushwalk Native Nursery. That's the closest one I've been able to find for you, so I hope that one helps. Greg, let's start with some of the gorgeous plants you've brought in this morning. All right, well, I'll start with the two aroids that I yes, brought in because they've been cut. I didn't uh, dig the plants out of the gardens. <laughs> I've just picked a couple of flowers. So the, the first one's the little mouse plants, the um, Arasarum proboscidium. Um, Which are the cutest things I are, love them. Amazing, great plant yeah. for children they're of all wonderful. ages. And they're great in a pot too. And the good, the so I, these ones were picked out of my ones in the garden. The problem is in the garden the leaves get really tall, much taller than the flowers. Yes. So you've got to go hunting for the for the flowers. You don't realise they're in flower. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and often people will have these in the garden and they'll see these green leaves and think, well, that's boring, it doesn't do anything. But if they part the leaves, there's these, uh, a mice. whole family of mice, yes. mice bums poking <laughs> up. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, but the advantage with having them in a pot, you can put the pot out in the sun at the start of the season and the leaves tend to be a lot shorter. And then the oh, flowers okay. get the chance of, often, especially if you've only got one or two big tubers in a pot, A, you can see the flower underneath the leaf, or and sometimes the flowers will actually join up to the surface of the leaf. So okay. you have the pretty leaves, but with these little mouse bottoms poking out of them. Great. And not only the mouse bottom, but a, a really quite um, uh, interesting little tail that they all have, and yes. they're all different. So you, you, the, they're, some are longer than others, and they all twist around um, and got a, a lot of character. The other interesting thing about these is uh, where they come from in the wild, which is uh, around the Mediterranean mm. somewhere. I can't remember exactly where. Um, they're actually pollinated by fungus gnats. Okay. And so uh, if anyone's familiar with what the inside of an aroid flower looks like, you have the spadix in the middle, which is, you know, yeah, like... The long thing. The long thing. Yeah. And <laughs> the, Using the technical term. The, the uh, reproductive parts are at the base of that, uh, that column. In these little things, they're mimicking a mushroom. So if you cut them open, the top part of the spadix is actually... Uh, trying to mimic a mushroom with gilled sort of structures, similar to a mushroom. Right, okay. Sometimes if you smell them, they actually smell a little bit mushroomy. Um, and they're really interesting. So if you cut the side out of one of the flowers, it's got this really quite uh, intricate structure that's completely and totally there just to trick a fungus gnat into getting in there and <laughs> for thinking it's laying its eggs in a mushroom and, and it's fer- fertilising the mouse plant. Yeah, they are. Yeah, uh, yes. It's arums in, in particular because they, they torture flies a lot too. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes they yes, do yes, some true. very interesting um, things. And that's <laughs> the, the other aroid that I bought, which is um, Arum purpureus bathum, um, which uh, 
it smells, but only if you stick your nose in it. Right. So it's not one that you... you yeah, you're not going to think something's died in the back no, of the no, car. No, no, yeah. no. And it's, not, it's more of a horse manure type smell. Okay. But it's only really if you stick your nose in it. But yeah. it has that smell to attract po- uh, flies and other, you know... Yeah, uh, more carrion insects. Carrion sort of insects yes, in yes. to pollinate it. Um, and it's just... it's. Uh, it's similar to uh, the Arum palestinum on the inside. I always think that palestinum looks like velvet mm. and purpurea spathum looks like suede. Yeah. Um, but the great thing about purpurea spathum is it's got the dark colour on the outside as well. So um, it's this beautiful, deep, dark, mm. burgundy. Yeah, almost a livery colour. burgundy. Yeah. It's mm. a really... And it doesn't smell too bad, and it's got beautiful leaves too. And ideal for the Gothic gardener. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and they flower for quite time, and it's also another one of those uh, arums that it's not weedy, mm. but it does have those beautiful um, uh, seed spikes on them too. So later on, once the leaves are sort of dying down and looking a bit horrid, you've got... Um, these seed spikes with bright red berries on them. I call them baked beans on sticks. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've yeah. got that sort of look of yeah. a baked beanie effect going up <laughs> and down. And they're really pretty. And I found this one in the garden at home is likely self-seeding. It does a little bit at yeah. home. Yeah. And the other thing I've found, uh, I think I would have originally got it from you, one of the Aramitalicum uh, variegated leaf yeah, forms. Yeah. Mm. And it's cross-pollinated with this. Oh. So Ooh. now I've got a variegated... Aramitalicum leaf, yeah. like heavily variegated, with a flower that's that black and a little bit bigger. Wow. Um, Stephen so wants one. Great, great <laughs> so the, surprise. <laughs> so, so the flowers on the purpurea spathum can stand up to 50, 60, 70 centimetres tall even sometimes. Right. So, yeah, this hybrid that I've found self-sown in the garden gets Fantastic. a little bit taller than that. It's got really broad flowers that are uh, 20 or 30 centimetres mm. wide even. I think I do want one. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's also got this yeah. beautiful marbled yeah. variegated Yeah, because the leaves of Purpurio spathum are pleasant, but they're not overly exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's a sort of a The most green. exciting thing is that burgundy edge that they have, yeah. which is really pretty when they first, when the, the foliage first comes yeah. out, they've got this sort of dark burgundy but edge. But I have to say, the aroids all have interesting foliage. I mean, you, you plant a daffodil without any expectation of having attractive leaves. Yes. But these things... Oh, are amazing. They well, have the, some gorgeous ar- leaves. and mm. Anamorphophallus. And, oh. and, and especially with the Arasamas, one of the most amazing things with those is when they're unfurling their leaves because they're like some strange alien satellite oh, emerging from ever. the spaceship. And, yeah. uh, uh, as a, you know, the, the watching the leaves unfurls almost as exciting and sometimes more exciting than the actual yeah. flower itself. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah, so they're, they're a very collectible group of plants, the aroids, because they've got so much going for them and there's different species that grow in different habitats and there's different seasons. Mm. So, you know, there's quite a number of them that flower well up to Christmas yeah. and later. And and, and, uh, the, and that sort of that strangeness too mm. where, like, you have, you know, something that attracts fungus gnats to uh, right up to mm. massive flowers that smell like rotting meat. Of course, you do, you do realise, Greg, that people who collect aroids are often thought of by gardeners <laughs> who grow roses as being some sort of weird horticultural axe okay. murderers. I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear, but they, no, they're fabulous plants. I love them too. Brilliant. Okay, we're going next to Anne, who's in Northcote. Good morning, Anne. Hi, good morning. I have an abutalon. Mm. It's variegated. I got it from the sixth department at the nursery a few years ago. It's been in the ground. Um, and it's starting to lose its variegation a little bit. Mm. So 
I need to chop off those green leaves, don't I? Yes, most variegated plants are not completely stable and so they will throw back to their green predecessor. And so if you get shoots that come up that are completely green, uh, I regularly check my variegated abutilins because they're not very stable, so they are inclined to throw back very easily. And as soon as I see a, gra- a green branch in them, I whip it out. Uh, so I go right back to where there's variegated foliage, and I do that on a very regular basis because if you leave the green bits, they tend to be far more vigorous than the variegated bits. And so they can very quickly uh, swamp out the variegation. So to keep that colour in the leaves, you've really got to get rid of the green bits. And so, thank you, Stephen. It's um, in flower now, mm-hmm. and it's very leggy. It always has been. It just probably didn't have a very good start in March. So can I really go right back? and, you know, give it a really good chop at the end of flowering and it'll... Well, the trouble with the butylins is they don't really have an end of flowering. (laughs) Uh, They can be flowering all year round. So um, I would prune them back quite hard in the late spring when the weather's really warming up. Um, But I'd also take some cuttings at the same time because normally they'll respond and shoot back again fine. But every so often, if you cut back into hard wood, you'll find the odd one collapses. So they're Mm. easy to propagate from cuttings. Uh, So I'd take a whole batch of cuttings and get them started uh, and then you've got an insurance policy if your main plant collapses but if it's straggly it's no point leaving it the way it is that's right just is very very straggly yeah and when you've got the young ones going make sure you're nipping the centers out of the plant regularly so that you build up a nice shaped bush from word go most people plant abutilins and because they grow so fast they just plant them and walk away and they become leggy so quickly and easily but if you spend that little bit of time to nip the centers out of the branches on a regular basis you can end up with quite a nice compact bush thank you and just one more if i may it's um it's on the northwest fence so it's got a little bit of mourning it's it's got okay large but Mm. i'm just with the light factor, it doesn't like to be in full sun because the chlorophyll doesn't um, doesn't have enough chlorophyll to be strong enough for full sun, but it likes light. Is that the right sort of thinking around a variegated soft leaf? Not necessarily. I mean, it's dependent on the plant wholly and solely, so the different cultivars will react in different ways. Um, Certainly the variegated abutilins will cope with a fair bit of shade, um, although you do have to be even more assiduous about nipping them to make them bushy. Uh, But I think that uh, most abutilins will grow perfectly happily out in full sun as well, even the variegated ones. So if I got a whole batch of cuttings going, uh, I'd actually be playing some experiments and seeing where they're doing best in the garden. So I would actually pop them in several different positions around the garden and once you've got the sense of where they're going to do their best, that's where you concentrate them. And because they're so quick growing, um, you can pull one out without feeling too guilty about it if it's not doing as well as one that's doing far better somewhere else. Thank you. That's a pleasure. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Bye. Just a reminder, those numbers, if you'd like to join us this morning to speak to Stephen and Greg on air, 94190155, or to have a chat with Doug on the outside line, 94198377. Greg, another plant. Um, well, the next one I think I'll mention is the, uh, I bought a little Romulea in. So most people would know the Romuleas from uh, is nut grass, I think, is the, uh, the common name yeah, for that it. That little pink weed that comes up in your everywhere. lawn and the yeah, lawnmower yeah. can't deal with the leaves. <laughs> and in a similar fashion to something like the Oxalis genus where 
ones are bad ones, so they're all bad ones, <laughs> and they're not. No, um, they're not. The Romulees are the same thing too. So there's a couple of yeah, ones that you really don't weedy want. Weedy ones. Um, yeah. uh, this one's Romulea uh, monodelpha, and it's just probably one of the prettiest bulbs I think mm. I've ever grown. Mm. It's uh, uh, it's just started to come out in the warm room here. Um, you can see that side. So when it's in bud. It's basically yellow and uh, with brown, dark brown, black feathering. Um, but when it splits open, it's deep blood red with black markings mm. on the inside. It's absolutely stunning. And they're as big as a crocus, aren't they? Yeah, they're yeah. Really oh, they're yeah. quite yeah. sizable yeah. too. Yeah, they're um, not like the tiny little weedy one in the lawn. Yeah. Uh, I've actually got a... Uh, my new phone has a, a special camera on it that does time-lapse. So oh, I've set, great. I've set up... Uh, I've done it with a couple of things now. Crocuses and these are, are pretty good because you can bring them in at night time into the warm room and set the camera up and get the lighting right. And it takes about 30 or 40 minutes. You just have the phone sitting there for about 30 or 40 minutes and it compresses it into about 30 or 40 seconds. And wow. so you get this 40 second video of this flower just going, uh, uh, opening up, you know, uh, and you can sometimes if there's a bug comes on, you see the little bug running around the edge of the plant. Oh, fantastic. Um, but it, it's, uh, that's, that's, uh, quite an interesting little video. But yeah, you can see, uh, the flower, the flowers here are, are starting to open up. I, I think that's one of the ones, uh, the photos should be on, on this morning's Facebook Excellent. Uh, post. Yes, great. Um, and, relatively tough plants you know they're from south africa so they can very much cope with our hot dry summers don't mm-hmm. have to water them they quite sensibly disappear yes yeah they just <laughs> die down to their bulbs and sit there and wait which yeah. i think is uh, it's perfect uh, for our climate of course it is i think you know sometimes we try and keep color going right through the year in our gardens and sometimes it's actually quite a relief to let things just disappear for the heat of summer exactly where you don't have to water them or deal with them in any way shape or form and then they come back and do their own thing when the weather changes again yes. uh, i mean those sort of plants are to be applauded I as think garden so. plants definitely mm. And, yeah. and with uh, and certainly with the, a lot of the South African ones too, you, you can do quite nice plantings in what otherwise would be sort of wasted areas in summer where nothing you know nothing it's a bit shady for things, but you don't want to plant a garden there. You can pop the bulbs in under your deciduous trees on the northern mm. side at least, um, and because these are all uh, winter growing, you know that's quite sunny there while they're growing, and then when they go dormant, they're underneath sort of the, the tree. Yeah, mm. under the drip line where you, uh, yeah. you really wouldn't water. And my, my oxalarium's exactly like that. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've got a rock garden where all my ornamental oxalises live and there's also a few babianas and other bulbs in there as well. And it is, it's actually is exactly as you described, Greg. It's underneath the canopy of the trees. Mm. So when the sun's low in the winter, it's shining in and the oxalises get lots of sun and they flower and they look fantastic. And then in the summer when it's, uh, when the sun's much higher, that whole rock garden goes into shade. I don't water it. Um, so it never gets a drink in the summer. And, and even the rain from the drip line of the tree, the, the tree mm-hmm itself stops a lot of that moisture getting in the ground or the stuff that does get in the ground the tree wants. So yeah, it, yeah, so yeah, it yeah. sort of keeps it dry. So it, it does, it makes yeah. it a good climate for those sort of things. And I've just got a few permanent succulents in there just to give a bit of something when the um, winter growing things like the oxaluses mm. are gone. Mm. Um, there's just a few sempervivums and other succulents in there. And the whole rock garden's covered in gravel, uh, so you're not looking at bare soil mm. and... It's the sort of area you get engaged with when things are happening and you can sort of ignore it without it being an eyesore the rest of the year. Yeah, and and ephemeral things, I think, are great. That's why I like doing the fungi walks up up around the mount. Yes. Is because you never know what 
you go out every time you go out uh you can be really surprised with what's happening out there and then two weeks later it's gone yes. again for another year you yep. know it's it's yep. sort of it's something you've got to catch at the right place at the right time um fantastic and, and it, it is yeah. it is yeah very much so so and um uh speaking of oxalis I've yes, actually managed to in it, and it has recovered. I, I uh, uh, this is also I've got one of the photos on the on the Facebook page there today as well. Um, so this particular pot I photographed uh, a couple of weeks ago and then left out the back door where it wasn't getting any rain. Um, Oops! And I went to grab it last night to bring in this morning, and everything's looking really sad. And I gave it a dunk in water, and. Uh, you know, eight hours later, it's it's it's, uh, it's recouped somewhat at least. Anyway, it's certainly the the plant's fine. Um, so the one I've bought in is Oxalis versicolor, uh, the candy cane Oxalis, mm. um, or sometimes known as Barber's pole. Barber's pole. Yes. 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 So yes, it's got, and you can understand why when you look at the closed buds because yes. they've got these There's amazing stripes, pink stripes. And, and, and after all the Oxalis that I've grown and seen in books and on Facebook and all these you know, beautiful pictures of different species, it's still got to be one of the most striking of the Oxalis species mm. uh, for that. And and it's also one of those flowers that's um, better in bud, almost, like when they're closed yeah. overnight. Yeah. When it's fully open, yeah. you can lose the pink. It's just white. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. white. That's it's right. still pretty, but yeah. it's, it's, yes. it's a fairly... And the other thing I like about Versicolor is it's an absolute stay-at-home. Mm. You don't have it sort yeah, of yeah, moving it sideways all over the place. It makes nice, neat clumps. You might get the occasional new plant that self-seeds or whatever around it, but they don't run. No. So it just stays put. And so mm. it's a very safe oxalis to plant in the garden at home. So even those with a phobia a- and also so the, the, the flowering time on it too is probably outdoes any other oxalis that I've grown at home mm. where you get some of the ones that will flower in autumn. They do their flowering and that's sort of it for the season. They've got nice foliage, so you yes. get to enjoy the foliage. Yes. This one will start flowering midwinter and pretty much carry on right through until it dies down. It's got a really long wow. flowering time mm. and it's quite... You know, uh, it has copious amounts of flowers. It's, uh, there's no, you don't get one or two per stem. They'll just keep coming. You, you mm. think, oh, they, they'll be done in a few weeks, and then you go out and there's still as many flowers on it a month later. Fantastic. Um, so the flowering time on these is amazing. Yeah. Too. It's just yeah. a, a great, great little plant. It is damn good species. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Okay, Stephen, let's let's go to a couple All of right, your All right, well, plans. some of these were closed when I walked in and they've opened since, so we'll, we'll talk about... That's what about, we were hoping would yeah. happen. Um, this is one that I is another South African bulb. Well, it was not strictly a bulb, I suppose. It's more a little cormy thing underneath it. They're, they're strange little yeah, things, little aren't they? Yeah, little woody sort of weird things. They don't look like they've got like any life in them. Buttons at or... Yeah. Yeah, they're str- strange. Strange structure it has underneath it. And for a long time, this group were known as spiloxines. Um, and the genus has been sunk with Hypoxis and a couple of other different genera into one genus now um, called Peridia, which is P-A-U-R-I-D-I-A. There's some dispute over which one this one is. Uh, when it was a spiloxine, uh, some people were selling it as spiloxine um, serrata. Um, I was told by a collector that he thinks it's actually sp- uh, peri- Peridia Gracilis subspecies speciosa, uh, which is a hell of a mouthful and one of those things I don't want to have to write labels big, out for. Big labels for those ones. Yeah, big labels for those ones. But it is the most incredible star-shaped flower of the most fabulous, bright, clear orange. It's just such a beautiful shade of orange. Um, and um, 
when it's first opening up, it looks like some sort of little tulip, and then it opens out basically flat, so it's very starry. And the flowers last for quite a while. They close at night, open during the day when the weather's fine enough. And you also get a succession of flowers that keep coming up from the, the base of the leaves. Oh, okay. So when one flower's about finishing, you'll get another one come up. So like Greg's Oxalis, it has a fairly long flowering period. So mm. it goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. So mm. it's, it's good value in the garden. Uh, I'm finding it comparatively slow multiplying. So it's obviously not going to take off. Um, in fact, it probably is one of those bulbs you'd rather move a bit faster than it actually mm. does. Yes. Uh, and it's growing in my oxalarium, which... At the moment, I've only got, I think, two species of oxalis in flower. One is versicolor, and the other one is a little pink one called obtusa, mm. uh, which is one of the later flowering oxalises. But I've got this mat of lovely sort of uh, greenery of the oxalis. I've got a couple of babianas coming out because they come out more into the spring. And I've got this little fellow, this peridia, glowing in the middle of the rock garden. It's just one little The, the outer, outer petals were amazing too. Yeah. As you say, it was closed up when, when you bought it in this morning and yeah, you've got this beautiful red blush on this on yeah. that really intense yeah. You don't expect it to be bright orange inside when yeah. you see the buds. And the whole plant's only a few centimetres tall, um, so it's quite small. It has long, sort of slightly archy leaves, but they're, they're fine and when they're dying down, they, they don't do it with any sort of drama. That's not one of those dramatic bulbs that dies down and lolls everywhere like some old diva. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it sort of disappears quite quickly So there's no sort of messy untidiness about it And I think uh, Peridia is really sweet I think mm. it's a lovely little bulb And it's a little unfortunate that um, Spiloxine capensis Which is now also um, uh, Peridia Which is a white starry flower with a black centre um, The Alpine, the um, Indigenous Bulb Growers Association of South Africa used that plant as their motif and uh, it's been moving around in genera for ages so it was probably not a great choice um, uh, I've, got, I've got the gold form of the capensis yeah. and that's a st- stunning, the, the colour it's like uh, when you see oil an oily surface reflect light oh, yes. uh, um, or peacock Tail feathers. Yes, it's got yes, that yes. Um, really bizarre metallic reflective wow. quality to, yeah. to the centre of the flower. Things. Yeah, it looks black, but if you turn it in the sun, it reflects wow. sort of dark green lights. Yeah. And yeah. so somebody should be collecting the genus Peridia. Yeah, I think mm. would make well, a great it, collection. It's bigger now too. Yeah, it's bigger now. Yes, there's, <laughs> there's far more of them to collect. Uh, that must be a real pain in the neck to anybody who's a collector. I know um, uh, when uh, Celia Rossa painted all the Banksias, yes, she painted all the Banksias. In fact, they painted one. She painted one that they found while she was painting it, and it's called uh, Banksia uh, Rossii, so it was named after her. Now they've put all the Dryandras into Banksia, and she won't accept it. <laughs> there's no way those things are Banksias, because she painted all the Banksias, and now there's all these other things that have been dumped in. So, yeah, poor old Celia's not very oh, impressed dear. that her genus has been fiddled with. Yes. So, yeah, so it is a bit confronting when your genus gets muddled with. So that's Peridia. Now, the other thing I bought in, which has opened up since we came into the studio, is a little anemone. Um, and some of the spring-flowering anemones, uh, they work in much the same way as some of the South African bulbs, although this particular one, anemone blanda, uh, comes from the sort of Mediterranean Greek sort of area. But it also dies down and likes a dry soil in the summer. Mm. Mm. So it's one of those plants that you can put into somewhere where you can ignore it for the summer. It'll keep coming up every year. It has these beautiful little blue starry flowers on it or little daisy type flowers on it. Uh, you can also get white versions and pink versions of anemone blander uh, and it has a funny knobbly little rhizome under it that is almost impossible to see. 
In po- especially oh. in potting mix. It looks in, like yeah, pine bark. Oh. Yeah, it does. It looks like a chunk of pine bark. <laughs> oh, and I've learnt with some of these things, the only way you can really know what you're doing with them is you actually wait till they start to shoot slightly. So yeah, you've got a little green knob on, yeah. on these bits of pine bark and you realise it's not pine bark, it's actually <laughs> the tuber of an ebony blander. Um, and I think it's a charming little thing. I mean, it only goes a few centimetres tall. The flowers are comparatively large for the dimensions of the plant so it's it's quite a showy little thing uh, and it will likely self-seed itself so you'll end up with little colonies of it and it just flowers beautifully in the late winter early spring and then just thump, it's gone mm. just disappears for the rest of the year you forget they're there and then the following late winter up the leaves come again and and the whole cycle mm. goes and, on. and the anemones the woodland anemones are really great for those darker spots under deciduous trees and shrubs too mm. i remember in the garden i grew up in lambard having uh anemone nemorosa growing underneath mollus azaleas oh. and you'd never know they were there yes. until they started growing just before the molluscs yeah. came out in bud and flower right and there was a carpet of white i mean they'd been there for a hundred years or so but there's a huge carpet of white underneath all the mollus azaleas yeah. they're great and little plants. by the time the molluscs came out and did their thing they'd you know, sort of pretty much done anyway, and yep. uh, then they were just gone for the rest of the year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they're one of those sort of great garden ephemerals. Brilliant. Okay, let's go next to uh, Ken out in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, everybody, and still, you've, I'm waiting for you to put a bad program over. <laughs> oh, we'll do <laughs> it for you one day. Don't tempt me. <laughs> I'm waiting for one of you to say, I wouldn't have a clue, or all of you to say, I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> That's an excellent program. But anyway, what I wanted to say was, you were talking about trees before. I've got about 15 trees in my, in my, on, around my house. And I've got a big, uh, a big iron bark that's 45 years old. I planted it when it was little. It's absolutely beautiful and it brings birds. Mm-hmm. And at the back of my place, I've got an easement. And I planted all indigenous to the western suburbs mm-hmm. trees, except for two, a wattle. That's from South Australia, and I love the Cootamundra, and I put a Cootamundra, but the rest are, and there's birds around my place, they keep me awake at the night time, they're about happy. Yeah, well, there you go, yes. And uh, it's important, I think, gardens, and even for your own health, gardens are very important. Oh, absolutely. And, and the, the forest, too. Um, you know, you can, if you haven't got your own garden, or haven't got a room for a big tree, or, or you're in an apartment or something, there's, you can get to some really beautiful forest within an hour from Melbourne or less. I'm oh, yes. Know. Oh, yes. And I love doing that too. Um, and some of the trees you find in the forest can be a lot older than anyone's ever been planting gardens in, in, Australia, yeah. in Australia for. Oh, yes. You can go and, uh, like up Mount Masson, there's a couple of yes. uh, messmate gums I know of in the forest that were left from the logging days in the 1850s and 60s and whatnot. Um, and one in particular, I reckon, just guessing's got to be at least sort of four to six hundred years old. Mm. It's an amazing uh, thing to to see. Yeah. Did they hide behind a tree? Did they? Well, there wasn't no, any trees left. I, I think the idea was when they were logging the landscape up there uh, to leave a few of the uh, gums along the ridge line to seed down the slopes of the mountain once they'd done, um, and. So, but the, the, obviously some of those have been, uh, have died and burnt over the years as well. So the ones, uh, hunting through the forests up there, I reckon I've found about 20 old eucalyptus, uh, oblique the, the messmate gums that are well over 200 years old. Mm. Yeah. That's absolutely beautiful. Um, but they're in little pockets and they're only up on the ridge. You don't find them anywhere else. Yes. Just, yeah. Anyway, your program's fantastic and, um, 
Uh, it's important. And I also put out um, bird seed once a week, and the birds just come in, and it's lovely. Yeah. Freeloaders, anyway. they're called. <laughs> <laughs> the only problem I've got is, 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 is a wife. <laughs> I don't I'm think I'm in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going there, Ken. Thank you. I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, lovely to hear from you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, Stephen, we've just had a, a little message up on the line uh, saying Judy called to remind of the passing of Rosemary Holmes, founder of Yulong Lavender Farm. Now, I, I didn't hadn't know. Heard. I no. hadn't heard either. No, no, nor so, had um, I. Uh, I'm very sorry to hear that. She used to be a regular on, on 3CR yeah, Gardening yeah. Show, of course. Yeah, she used to come in here dressed in mauve. Yes, always <laughs> dressed in mauve. Yeah. <laughs> but um, she was a wonderful person. Great so, character. Yeah. I remember she did a talk for the Mount Macedon Horticultural Society one night on lavender, obviously. Yes. And... She talked about lavender, how to grow lavender, why you should grow lavender, what you can do with lavender, and she finished off her talk with a lavender-oriented menu where everything that you ate that night would have lavender in it, <laughs> which I thought was taking things a top of <laughs> uh, Yeah, so she had everything from sort of lavender lamb roast through to lavender ice cream and yes, yeah, the, yes. whole, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, uh, and it just goes to show, because we mentioned, of course, the lavender collection earlier being held at um, Bendigo, that when somebody passes, those plants can still be properly cared for, looked after exactly. and moved on to somewhere else. And yes. that's exactly what's happened. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so I hadn't heard about her passing. No, uh, I'm very sadly. sorry to hear that. Mm. Um, I always, I have very fond memories of going up to you long one time when they were actually in full harvest oh, uh, yes. with the lavenders. And, of course, she used to bring in um, uh, llamas. Yes, I remember the lavenders and llama. And, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd have their little baskets yeah. on either side and all the, all the cuttings would go into the baskets and it, it used to be a wonderful day, particularly for families with young children. It mm. was great fun. So, yeah, I'm very sorry to hear that. Yes, it is sad to hear of the passing of somebody and uh, even more so considering we didn't hear. Yes. So I don't know when she passed away. But, no, uh, I don't know either. I hadn't heard, so I'm disappointed I didn't know. Yeah. But, you know, these things happen. I know, unfortunately. Greg, on a more brighter note, something okay. cheery. Yes. Well, um, that's one cheery. Ah, perfect. Yeah, I thought, yeah. Uh, this is, so this is one of the little... Sp- I don't uh, grow a lot of daffodils. Um, not that I dislike them, in, but yeah, the hybrids. I, you know, lots of people have daffodils. Lots of people have daffodils. They do. I prefer species things because I, I, yeah, just find them more interesting in a lot of regards. So, one of the daffodils I don't think I could do without the little Cyclamenaeus, which um, uh, I've been growing from seed a lot. I, I found. I think I bought my original plants from Stephen when I was probably about fifteen or yeah. something, and. <laughs> The clump sat there for, I think, when I started the nursery, I wanted to pot some of these up, obviously. Mm-hmm. And that original clump I got off Stephen was getting up to a size where I could cipher some bulbs off the, yeah. off, okay. the off the side. Yep. Um, and, but for the, the few years before that, I'd started to collect seeds off them and grow them from seed. And it turned out that in two years, by collecting seed and growing them from seed, I had more than enough bulbs to sell in the nursery than the clump I'd been keeping yeah. and waiting to right. multiply okay. by. Okay, yes. Um, so Not the world's fastest multiply no, no. by bulb. <laughs> but, it's and it's also a good uh, thing for people who are into bulbs especially and, and other plants as well. Uh, don't be scared of growing stuff from seed because you get 
uh, a lot more, and you can get a lot of interesting outcomes too. Oh, of course. Um, uh, you notice the, these are seed-grown uh, cyclamineas, so so the, it's a reasonably small daffodil, um, beautiful recurve petals, and it looks a little bit like a cyclamen flower. Hence, hence, the, hence name. the name. Actually, I always think it looks like a Christmas bonbon. <laughs> that too, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. does a bit. Yeah, so um, that look about it. So, yep. so the, the flower, it's the, 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 it's the corona, I think, isn't it? Mm. The, the, the tube of the daffodil faces down towards the ground yes. and, and the petals recurve up. Um, and, yeah, beautiful little daffodil. Uh, these ones are all seed grown and, the, and you can see variation in the ends of the little trumpets. Now, I'm never going to try and hybridise them or anything because no, that no. doesn't interest me, but it, I always find naturally occurring variation interesting. So there's, you always, yeah, there's, occasionally you'll find something that's uh, um, a, a nice little, oh, wow, well, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you and never can know from seed what's going to happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, even if it doesn't cross-pollinate with something else and you end up with a hybrid like your weird arum. Yeah, yep. Don't forget, I want one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but you can get sort of all sorts of weird aberrant forms. In fact, I've got a cyclamenius in the garden at home that was given to me by Otto Fauci years ago, and it's a double. A double fl- flowered one? Yeah, double. I've got one of them popped up yeah, too in it's, seeds. It's, yeah. And it's the weirdest looking thing. It's yeah. just this sort of mass of weird petals going in all sorts of yeah. different directions. And Otto called it ugly. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a plant of cyclamenius ugly yeah. growing in the garden. Well. It is, well, it is a particularly bizarre little thing. And it's probably, it could only be loved by a collector probably because it doesn't even look like a proper daffodil even. Um, uh, but because it's a, it, it is straight cyclamenius, it's also not multiplying very fast yes, I think. Yeah. I, after about five years in the ground I think I've got two bulbs there. I got you confused I, I, the one I've got that's a double isn't a double flowered a single double flower ah, I've got a, one that actually has two, two heads flat, so yeah. it looks like a snake with two heads yeah. so it's sort of got the okay. it's, it's oh, yeah, a normal cyclamenius yeah. flower but yeah. it's got two heads on each this stem. thing isn't yeah, because uh, <laughs> it has no trumpet it's just this sort of weird collection of petals going <laughs> in all sorts of directions uh, and it is the strangest looking thing but I'll never have it for sale even if I you know even if I wanted to which I don't really think I do because it's only a collector's item yes. it? yes, there's nothing yes. sort of particularly pretty about it but because I I can only grow it from divisions because yep. it doesn't set any seed, no. and even if it did, it'd throw probably back to the normal form. Yeah. Yep. Um, and as I said, I got it years ago from Otto, and I think I've got two bulbs by the looks of it coming up to flower at the moment. Um, and I think I got it from him about five or six or seven or eight years ago. Okay. And I've now got possibly two. Uh, so it's going to be a long time before I ever have. You'll have to take a photo of the flower, oh, yeah, well, yeah, when, David. You'll want to have a look. Yeah, I'll, I'll put it up on my Facebook <laughs> yeah, page when it opens up and people can they can write nasty comments about how, <laughs> how my ugly is seriously, in fact, ugly. Uh, <laughs> it's bright yellow, but it doesn't look anything like a daffodil. Yeah. <laughs> um, and another, uh, I, I brought a couple of gladdies down. They, they've... Um, uh, Gladys spread themselves out over the year, and I believe in uh, parts of Africa there's a gladiolus, different species of gladi that flowers pretty much every day, really. Mm. Wow. Um, but uh, one of the earlier ones I have, this is probably actually a hybrid. It's certainly not a straight species. Um, I think years ago I might have got one from you too, Stephen. Uh, uh, I think you had it labelled as Victoria. Yes, yes, that um, was one that I got from Barney Hutton. Okay, ago. and I can't find any reference to Gladiolus yeah. Victoria. I don't anywhere. know where he got so that name from. I'm not sure he got the name either. from either, but it's a Cardinalis hybrid, I believe. Yes. So it's 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 a deep sort of watermelon reddish sort of colour. Um, has white and slightly ultraviolet markings in the throat. Um, 
This one's a, it's a little bit weak, uh, a weaker grower, um, but it's it's a good. It, it always comes up. Mm-hmm. So some years, I'm not sure what causes it. It can look a bit rough, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the flowers always look nice. The foliage can look a bit rough. It's yep. had a good year this year. The the foliage all looks pretty good. Um, and it's, as I say, it's the species cardinalis often flowers in summer. They, they sort of live in rock cracks on waterfalls and okay. things like that. So that they, um, they need fairly constant moisture through the summer months. But like the gladdies are wont to do, they're quite promiscuous. And you, if you can get the pollen off one and, and match it to something that's reasonably closely related to it, even if it flowers at the opposite end of the season, you can get all sorts of Unusual oddities that come okay. up from yeah, some it. Strange hybrids. Yeah, I um, believe some of these gladi, the sort of cardinality type ones that grow in waterfalls, people have been known to fall to their death trying to, trying to collect them. them. <laughs> oh, uh, it's one of those sort of plants because you know you've got to be a rock climber as well yes, as a plant right. collector if you're going to collect some of those. And they're ones. slippery rocks. Yes, yes. and they're yeah. slippery rocks. Yes. So, so this Victoria one's quite early flowering. Um, it's very pretty. Uh, but the, the, a stronger grower that flowers a little bit later in the season and is much bigger. It's 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 almost getting up to the size of some of the smaller hybrid gladdies uh, in a good way um, is um, one called Amanda Mayhe, which is another Cardinalis hybrid, mm. which okay. is a much, much stronger grower. As I say, you get these uh, quite uh, well over a metre tall flower stems on them sometimes. Um, and it's a pretty good divider without being any, by any means weedy or anything like that. Because okay. one or two of the gladdies can go They weedy. can get pretty... Uh, and, and often that depends, and same with uh, some of the Oxalis and other mm. things that are spread by bulb. So things that spread by seed are a problem, but um, uh, some of the oxalis that people think are a bit weedy, it's actually when you move the bulbs around. So you see yes. the oxalis um, purpurea at mm. the cemeteries, and yes. they go, oh, that's weedy. Uh, there's a bit of digging that goes on in a cemetery, and that's how you the bulbs yeah, around the problem. Yes. And, they've, and they've been there for over 100 years, too. Yes. So it, it, when you think of it in that regard, they're not that weedy. And, and as Stephen says, there's uh, a couple of the species gladdies that produce thousands of little bulbles off each bulb. Mm. And there's one just, that grows at lawn. Ah, yeah. In the sand. Is that yes. the undulatus? Undulatus, yeah. yeah and it's got these weird sort of pale, buffy, cream-coloured flower with wavy petals. And I know when I go down to lawn getting on towards Christmas, it's nearly always in flower. And it's growing in amongst the spinifex grass on the top edge of the beach. Right. Mm. So it's a pretty difficult position for anything to grow. Yeah. Uh, and that gladiola's loving it. Yeah. Yep. And that's the, the bulbs and sandy yeah. soil, and you've got something that can really cause a problem. And uh, gladi- gladiolus tristis also produces a lot of bulbs. But I like that one. It's beautiful, yeah. yeah it's um, a lovely gladi. And there's a spot near Kyneton where someone must have had a clump in the ground there, and when they put the cold freeway bypass through Kyneton, they've smeared it across the countryside. Oh. And, and it's, it probably won't spread any more than yeah. where it is now yeah. because the soil's a bit heavier up there, mm. so it's, and no one's going to disturb it anymore. Um, but there's... You know, quite a few hundred flowers each season of Gladiolus tristis that come up, and and, and it's uh, lovely. And it's the perfume, a, uh, uh, the perfume thing. of some, and that's yeah. Another thing with the Gladys is you don't think about the perfume. And no, you don't. Got some of the most. This, yeah. this one doesn't, but yeah, some of the species Gladys have the most amazing. Actually, I've perfume. got tristis mm. in the garden at home, and it comes up through a whole patch of um, stackies, the lambs ears. Okay. And so you've got the the silver foliage of the stackies, and then you've got these spikes that come up through it. Yeah. Uh, and when it flowers, and, and because the leaves are quite fine, they don't make a a, a serious 
effort of looking dreadful when they're dying down. Um, but there's something there when the gladdies are gone. Yeah. And so I've got the silver leaves of the lamb's ears, and I have this lovely soft lemony colour of the gladiolus tristis that come up through it, and it works really well. And they, and I mean, the clumps are getting bigger over the years, but it's not spreading all over. Well, as I say, it's it's only uh, so the the mechanism for uh, distributions getting the soil disturbed. Yes. And they often come from those floodplains. Yes. The Tristus and Undulatus mm. are both floodplain, uh, have evolved in floodplains. And so when you get a big flood through there and it washes all the soil out, all those little bulbs, the big bulb might even die, but all those little bulbs, yeah. get, you know, if you've got a thousand of them, uh, 200 of them might get lodged somewhere advantageous to the bulb. And yes, then, right. then a couple of years later, a couple of years later, you've got 200. Full-size flowering bulbs right. from those pits. Because if you wow. have a, 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 a herbivore like a, a baboon or a monkey of some sort that pulls out the big bulb yeah, to yeah. eat it or the big corn, yep. then all the little baby ones fall off the side. Of They're course. not going to get those. So yep. that works as spreading the plant as well, although yep. baboons are not common in Australian gardens. <laughs> Just as well. Yeah, fortunately. <laughs> Oh dear, Stephen. Oh yes, we better uh, yeah. run through a couple of other. I've got to get you to talk about oh, this before yeah, now, we run out of time. This is a woodland perennial from China, uh, and some people will know it as Chinese May Apple, or you may know it by the botanical name of Podophyllum, uh, which was quite a nice botanical name. Uh, unfortunately, it's had a name changed, and um, and quite a while ago actually, but it hasn't really caught on in the trade yet because the genus itself is not well known in the trade, I guess. Uh, But it's now called Dysosma, which is D-Y-S-O-S-M-A, Dysosma, not Diosma, fortunately. So just that one? It's just the Chinese ones. The Chinese ones. Yeah, so Podophyllum still applies to um, most of the American ones, and there's one Chinese one I think that's now known as Sinopodophyllum. Okay. So it's, it's, it's been sort of split up in a slightly <laughs> weird way. Uh, this one is Dysosma verspilli, and when the leaves come up, they look like an umbrella without the cloth on it. You've just yeah, got the they spokes do. The coming spokes. down, yep. and it's sort of like a green umbrella. And the leaves can get up to about 30 to 40 centimetres across, so they can be really big. Wow. They're glossy and shiny. Um, and the flowers are burgundy, and they sit below the leaves, so they're a bit like some of the aroids. The flowers aren't obvious, so you've got to go hunting to mm. find them. But they're the most beautiful, elegant, sort of uh, drooping, wavy, petaled bells in a dark livery burgundy colour that hang below the, the okay. leaves. Um, for such a huge, soft-looking plant, it actually, as long as it's in the shade, it's actually not that moisture-hungry, so it will cope with a little bit of dryness at the roots. So it's not too hard to grow. If you can grow a hostie, you should be able to grow a diosma. And they're a great foliage plant. The leaves stay up most of the summer into the autumn. Then they die down for the winter. Um, the flowers come out in late spring. And when you've got a really big plant, the flowers will start erupting first. So you'll see these funny green buds that will be coming up. And the leaf... The sort of umbrellas of leaves will be starting to push them out. Uh, but well before the flowers open, the leaves will have opened right out and be sitting like a, an open umbrella above the flowers. Mm-hmm. And the flowers only form on stems that are big enough to produce two leaves on the stem. And the flowers actually hang out of the axles of the leaves. Wow. And they're amazing plants. They get quite large, interesting-looking fruit on them as well, which apparently is edible. Um, uh, in fact, the American species, they call them May apples because they yeah. ate them like but apples. Mm. Yeah. They're not May apples here, I guess. No. No, no they don't come out in May here. <laughs> no. no, no, completely different uh, season of the year. Uh, but a really nice woodland perennial. It would make a great pot plant, so growing in a large, um, 
ornamental pot would be lovely for the summer. Uh, the slugs and snails don't seem to eat them. I was like going to do. ask you, not like hostas. Mm-hmm. No, they. I mean, you might get the occasional little bit of damage, but they don't end up looking like ripped paper doilies like oh, hostas. That's good. So if you can grow hostas, pull them all out and yeah. buy and a put these in. Yeah, <laughs> put these in instead. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, an interesting one out there that uh, has become quite popular, and you see it around a little bit. That's an American hybrid that they've called Spotty Dotty. Oh, I've got that at home. Yeah, yeah. which is beautiful, but it's a bloody <laughs> awful name. <laughs> Horrible yeah. name. Oh, I hate it. Some of the American names that are put on things, I mean, Rod Barwick with these daffodil hybrids in Tasmania does it as well. They do these sort of naff things, um, and I sort of wince a bit, and, and it often puts me off a good plant because they've given it a sort of silly name. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, Rod's got a gorgeous little daffodil that he called Bees a Babe. Which I think is just <laughs> awful. I have to think up something for my arm for you. Yeah, well, yes, come up with a good name. Yeah, um, uh, uh, but you know, you can come up with nice names for things. But anyhow, this is a wild species of Dysosma, um, and when they come into full leaf, um, everybody asks about them. They are oh, really yeah. a remarkable-looking plant with these huge, big, glossy leaves. Mm. They're really, really pretty things, um, and they're not too hard to grow. They're slowish to clump up. They take a little while to make a good-sized clump. Uh, I found them easy to. Propagate those so I can build them up in quantity fairly quickly. Okay. Uh, you do them from root cuttings. Uh, and you can end up with lots uh, if you do root cuttings Um, so every year in the winter when I'm dividing the clumps up I just cut all of the bases off all the roots put them out in a polystyrene box cover them and it takes about 18 months but then you'll have all these little baby disosmas will come up Mm. out of the polystyrene box and I'll have 40 or 50 plants Uh, an umbrella factory yes an umbrella (laughs) factory Uh, but I just love them I think they're wonderful plants they're not showy in the sense, you know, it's a bit like aroids and a lot of these other things. They're they're bizarre and interesting and fascinating more than they Which are seriously a beautiful. Lot better, I reckon. Yeah, well, for me, oh, I, yeah. I, I find I that a lot more attractive. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and they're beautiful foliage. Like you say, it's not. It mightn't be um, uh, in your face attractive, or but it's yeah. the foliage is absolutely stunning. Oh yeah. yeah. And I think foliage because it stays around a lot longer than the average flower can be far more telling in a garden anyway. Mm. So if you've got good leaves on something. Mm. Um, whether it flowers or not, it's almost immaterial. Absolutely. You know, so, yeah, so disosma, you'll still see them around the trade as podophyllums, probably. Yep. Which means foot leaves. Mm. Okay. As in they've got, you know, like podiatrists. Sounds, so it's, yep. it's got a foot. Sounds lovely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so maybe disosma is a better name, really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're running out of time rapidly. Oh, quick. Uh, there's a cyclamen that's in flower at the moment, or cyclamen, depending on what school you went to. Yep. Uh, one of the late winter flowering ones, uh, cyclamen sudibericum, and it smells peppery. It's got an interesting... Peppery? Peppery, sort of, or woody. It's got a strange yes. perfume. It's not a, a sweet scent. Um, uh, I've had people describe it in all sorts of ways. Mm. But it's a chunky, bright, magentary pink mm. um, cyclamen with very ha- handsome marbled leaves. It will likely self-seed, but it's not as prolific a self-seeder as some. Mm. Uh, but it makes a very telling show in the garden when it's in flower because its flowers are nice and big and chunky and they get lots of them. Uh, and it's very easy in a woodland condition. And finally, the only other thing I brought along, most people are fighting Vinca Major, the big periwinkle. Yes, yes, yes. As a, thuggish damn thing that it is and it's growing all through our forests and things now um, but there's vinca minor the lesser periwinkle which is actually a very useful ground cover or trailing plant for over a wall or what have you and i bought along the double blue one azurium floriplenum uh, i think the jury's out about this one i quite like the simpleness of the single flowered vincas i have to say because they've got a certain sort of symmetry about the flowers that i quite like um, I guess the best I can say of the double is that it's different. 
Yep. Uh, I mean, the flower's much the same size. It's got a good, rich, bluey, purple colour to it. It's got a nice, glossy green leaf. Uh, it's a darker colour than Vinca Major. Yeah, it is. It's a darker colour than Vinca Major. It's a really good dark blue. Uh, and it's very controllable because it tends to grow mainly across the surface. So if it grows further than you want, you can just stick a spade through mm. the end of the clump uh, and control it. Mm. Or like I have in the garden at home, my van controls it. Okay. Because <laughs> it's on the edge of the driveway. Yeah, so there you go. So they're the bits I brought along today uh, that you can see on Facebook. Perfect, perfect. Greg, just very quickly, if anyone wants to come and do a walk with you, how yep. do they contact you? Uh, Facebook's the easiest way. Yep. So Greg Boldiston on Facebook. Okay. And there's a group called Masson Rangers Fungi Flora and Fauna that you can follow on Facebook, and there's beautiful pictures up there. Yep. Um, and the walks are every second Saturday. Fantastic. And the next one's next week. Next Brilliant. Saturday. Okay. Big thank you to the team. A huge thank you to uh, Liz and Doug who've handled all the calls for us this morning. We will be back at 7.30 next week. So until then, bye for now.